Well, we've been in Luke for quite some time now, but the way our Harmony of the Gospels works, we'll sometimes skip around from place to place. And so, while we've been in Luke 17, up to verse 10, we're going to jump into John 11 today and look at the sickness and death of Lazarus. Now, back to our section Luke 17, after where we've already looked, next time we'll see that while Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. So whoever put together this harmony thought that this section in John 10, 11 rather fits between Luke 17.10 and Luke 17.11. So imagine that right there. We can't say for sure, but it's uh, a pretty good guess. Let's read our verses for today. John 11, and we'll see how far we get. Verses 1 to 16. It's a fairly long chapter dealing with the the sickness, death, raising of Lazarus, and the aftermath, 57 verses, but we'll do just through verse 16 today. John 11, starting verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also, so that we may die with him. Now this whole story of Lazarus is unique to John. It's kind of surprising. We don't know exactly why that other gospel writers didn't mention this. It's such a key portion of of John, but it's only here. And it's also very important in John's gospel. You might remember that Jesus in this gospel shows Jesus' power through seven signs. The first one was the, remember, remember the first sign Jesus did? Uh, turning water into wine, yes, in John chapter 2. This is the last and, and the greatest one. And you might recall the kind of theme verses of John are in John 20, 30, and 31. Therefore, many other signs, that is besides these seven, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So these seven are representative of Jesus' many signs, and they are written so you might believe in who Jesus is and have eternal life. So the raising of Lazarus is the last and greatest of these seven signs. 
and it's the only resurrection miracle in John, of course, besides Jesus' own resurrection. And this is not just any resurrection. Remember other resurrections Jesus performed? There was a, a girl who had just died, and then there was a man who was in the funeral procession that Jesus raised from the dead. So these other raising miracles were people who were just had just died. But in this case, it's a someone who's been dead in the tomb four days and stinks resurrection. This is a obvious death. This isn't somebody who might have just resuscitated somehow, but this is a man who is for sure dead in the tomb. He stinks, and he's been raised by Jesus. And each of the signs Jesus accomplishes has a specific purpose. And the raising of Lazarus proves something about Jesus. And then we see that in John 11, 25, and 26, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So Jesus raises Lazarus to prove that he is the resurrection and the life. All he's promised about eternal life after death is proved because Jesus has the power to raise Lazarus. Just as, say, earlier in John in chapter 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it shows that he is the bread of life. And when he heals the man born blind in John 9, Jesus says it shows that he is the light of the world. So, in some cases anyway, these signs link to a an aspect of Christ and his person and his power. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the light of the world, and he's also the resurrection and the life. One other important thing about the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11 is that this is the final trigger of the Jewish authorities to kill Jesus. He's been threatened with death many times in all the Gospels, especially in John. But this is the the last straw, you might say. Verse 45 of John 11. Therefore, many... This is after Lazarus has been raised. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, that is, Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Skip down to verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. And then John 12 goes right into the time of Passover, just days before Jesus' crucifixion. So the, the, the last straw, as I said before, is that Jesus raises Lazarus. This is such an amazing, incontrovertible miracle. The authorities say, we, we have to get rid of Jesus or all the world is going to believe in him. So that's the importance of this section, this miracle in John 11. It's the, the last and greatest of Jesus' signs. It shows he's the resurrection and the life. And it also is the trigger that leads to Jesus' crucifixion. Now what's the setting here in John chapter 11? Well, you might remember back to John 10 from some weeks or months ago. We see in verse 22, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Feast of the Dedication. Remember the other name of that, the modern name we use for the Feast of Dedication? Around Christmas time? Hanukkah, yes. So it's the winter time. Hanukkah. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Verse 30, Jesus is speaking and he says, I and the Father are one. 
the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many work, good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Skip down to verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that I, the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And this, this seat is important in John 11. They have tried to seize Jesus in Jerusalem. Jesus then goes, verse 40, away beyond the Jordan, probably up north uh, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, some ways away. It's not his time to die yet. So Jesus gets out of Jerusalem, out of the area where these Jewish authorities have their power. And he's there for a time, and that's where we went back to the middle part of Luke, where we've been for a while. So that's the setting. There's hostility in Jerusalem. Jesus goes away across the Jordan for a time, but now something calls him back to Jerusalem. Now, into our text today, John 11, verse 1, we have the setting here. We see a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Now, it seems kind of strange that we know Lazarus married Martha. Anybody who's familiar with the Bible, I think, knows about Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, but they really are not that prominent in, in terms of the amount of space they get in the Gospels. We've met Martha and Mary in Luke 10. You recall the story, I think. Luke 10, verse 38. They were traveling along, and he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried about and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So Jesus enters his village and goes to Mary and Martha's home. Martha is busy with her work, and Mary sitting at, sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him. Any mention of Lazarus in that passage? Whether he was there or not, uh, maybe uh, he didn't live with Martha at this time. He was somewhere else, or he was just so quiet, and it wasn't part of the story at all. In any case, we, we meet Mary and Martha in Luke 10, but not Lazarus. And as well known as Lazarus is from his prominence in John 11 and 12, we only see him in those two chapters. He's nowhere else mentioned in the Bible. The name Lazarus, as we saw a few weeks ago, we saw the rich man and Lazarus, different Lazarus, uh, I think a fictitious Lazarus, a common name back then. It's a shortened form of Eleazar. Remember, Eleazar was one of the sons of Aaron, the priest. And an interesting thing is, if you read through John 11 and 12, where we see Lazarus only in the Gospels, you never say, you never see the term Lazarus said. Lazarus doesn't say anything. He's always just there. Uh, we meet him uh, in the beginning of John 11, he's sick, then he comes out of the tomb. We see him later sitting at a feast, but he never says a word. So he's sort of there in the background. But he himself, we'll see later, is a testimony of the power of Christ. Just the fact that Lazarus is alive is a sign that Jesus is the Son of God. And as I mentioned before, Lazarus being only in John 11 and 12, Mary and Martha are only in Luke and John. 
Now, sister Lazarus is from Bethany, and also the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This place, Bethany, is east of Jerusalem, and Mark mentions that Bethany is near the Mount of Olives. So you have Jerusalem, and then to the east, you go across the Kidron Valley, you have the, the, uh, the Mount of Olives. On the east side of the Mount of Olives is Bethany. Some of you may have been there before. Uh, so it's, a, it's not a very far walk. Uh, John eleven eighteen says later that Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. We'll see later on, on Palm Sunday, in Mark eleven eleven, it says that Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. So Jesus enters Jerusalem with all the fanfare, the people shouting Hosanna. He comes into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. So Bethany was a good stopping off point, a good place for him to stay the night outside Jerusalem. He doesn't want to spend the night in Jerusalem necessarily at this time. He can get away from the hostility in Jerusalem and still be close enough to walk. Another interesting item, as I was looking at what Bethany is, is it's the location of the ascension and Jesus' return to heaven. Luke 24, 15-51 says, He led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives by Bethany there, and that's where he's taken up into heaven. So that's Bethany, a small village, but of great importance in Jesus' life. Verse 2, let's continue. It says, It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And there are many Marys in the Gospels, so Jesus is more specific. You can't just talk about Mary. You have to talk about a particular kind of Mary. This story is mentioned here by John. We'll see it later in John 12. But it may be that Mary was generally known through earlier church teaching, being the one who wiped Jesus' feet with her hair and anointed Jesus with ointment. Now, earlier I said that Mary only appeared in Luke and John, but I overstated my case a bit because she appears in Matthew and Mark, but anonymously. And so the, the story of her anointing Jesus' feet with a costly perfume and wiping them with her hair is in Matthew and Mark as well as in the Gospel of John. And what a tribute it is, it says of, said of Mary in Mark 14.9, it says, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. So wherever the gospel goes, the story of Mary and what she did for Jesus to prepare him for his, his death and his, his burial would be spoken of her. Her story is a, an important part of the gospel accounts. By the way, there's a similar story in Luke 7. There was a woman who was a sinner who also anointed Jesus' feet with this costly perfume. But that was earlier in Jesus' ministry. Some have tried to link Mary of Bethany with this woman, probably a prostitute, in Luke 7. But it seems to be a similar situation, but not the same woman who does this. Now, looking at Mary here, it's interesting to see that whenever we see her, or almost always when we see her, where is she? She's at Jesus' feet, isn't she? When we meet her in Luke 10, she's sitting at his feet listening. In John 11:32, she comes to see Jesus. And it says, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet. And then in John 12, we'll see her anointing Jesus' feet with his perfume, wiping his feet with her hair. So she's always at Jesus' feet, it seems like. 
a very humble sort of woman who loved Jesus so much, just wanted to be near him, even as a servant would be at his feet. Grateful, perhaps, just to be there with him, to listen to him. Verse 3, John 11. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, I was thinking about this. It's easy to kind of just breeze past this, but in these days, how do you send word to somebody? Jesus is not at home. You're in Bethany near Jerusalem. Jesus is somewhere across the Jordan, probably up north near the Sea of Galilee. How do you send word to Jesus? You can't just call him. Jesus, where are you? I have an app on my phone. I know where my family is at all times. They know where I am too. Actually, I know where their phones are at all times. Where they are might be a different thing if they leave their phone at home or someplace else. But it's easy to find people nowadays. But in these days, how do you know where Jesus was? You might know vaguely that Jesus was up north, across the Jordan. You might know somewhere, even though the village where he was, he didn't leave a forwarding address, I expect. So when you you have something urgent to send to somebody in those days, how do you do it? Well, they sent a messenger, probably just, he's up there somewhere, we think. Just go and find him. He had to ask from place to place where Jesus was. So it wasn't a quick thing to send a message. Some people give the impression that they just sort of walked across the, the Jordan River and they found Jesus and that was it. But it could have been days that they needed to actually find where Jesus was. So you see the sent word to him, don't make make it look too easy. This is probably a difficult task. And the message is simple. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. What a great description of any follower of Christ. He whom you love. This, this relationship with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, we'll see later in verse 5, is a special one. It doesn't say what he was sick with, but it's serious enough that the sisters sent for Jesus. It wasn't a, a normal kind of, it was a cold or something like that where he'd just get better. The sisters are concerned for him and want Jesus to come and heal him, but they don't say so. It's interesting. They appeal to Jesus' love for Lazarus, but they don't say, please come or please heal him. They just want to let Jesus know, and they trust that Jesus will just do the right thing. Now, verse 4 says, but when Jesus heard this, he heard this message, he said, the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, I've noticed, or noted rather, a number of times as we go through the Gospels, that while there are many explicit claims Jesus makes to be God, I and the Father are one, that sort of thing. There are also many verses that implicitly show Jesus' deity, or at least his claims to deity. And we want to look out for those as well, because there are times when you might talk to somebody who doesn't believe Jesus is God, and you they'll have ready answers for some of these verses, like John 1.1. The word was God. They might try to talk their way around that. But when you see all these implicit understandings of Jesus, or these claims of Jesus to be God, those can really hopefully have power because there's so many of them. You can't just deny that Jesus at least thought he was the Son of God, that thought he was God in human flesh. You can deny the Gospels outright, that's fine, but to say that Jesus didn't think so means that you must deny the Gospels. You can't believe in the Gospels and believe that Jesus thought he was a mere man. Look at what he says here. This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. We have this glory of God and 
the idea of the Son of God also may be glorified by it. No mere prophet would say such a thing. You can't imagine uh, Elijah or Elisha saying, I'm going to do this miracle so that God would be glorified and that I would be glorified. Now, it's all just God's glory. Remember Isaiah said, that God says, my glory I will not give to another. But the Son of God is owed that glory because he possesses that glory in himself. And so Jesus, by claiming this uh, a, a sickness that will not end in death to glorify God and glorify the Son of God, is again an implicit uh, statement that Jesus believed he was God and the Son of God. Now, the glory of the Father and the Son are a, a major theme of John. We don't have time to go through all of them, but let's just focus on the, the idea of glory for a while. And it's tempting to, to just do an exhaustive look of, at, at God's glory in the Bible, but we don't have time for that today. But if we go back to John 1, John 1, the term glory connects in the Bible with the light John spoken of in John 1, verse 9. doesn't use the term glory here, but there was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. The glory is often associated with light. It's also associated in the Old Testament with the pillar of cloud and fire that guided the people through the wilderness or other spectacular appearances of light, cloud, and fire. Uh, listen to Exodus 24. 1617, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. No, the glory of the Lord rested on it, and the cloud covered it for days. So the glory of the Lord is represented by a cloud. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. So this manifestation of God's glory was cloud, smoke, fire on the top of the mountain. Exodus forty thirty four. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we can go to dozens of other places, talking about God's glory associated with cloud, with smoke, with fire, with light. Look at Exodus 33. This is a well-known portion of Exodus related to God's glory. Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses said... I pray you, show me your glory. And how does God answer that? He said, verse 19, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So when Moses asks to see God's glory, God says, I will make my goodness pass before you and his his graciousness, his compassion, his name all these things are associated with God's glory. Uh, and verse 22 says, It will come about that while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So God's glory is manifested again physically somehow with this light. It doesn't say so here, but I think it was a cloud and light. But it's also associated with God's goodness, his character, his, his grace, his kindness. And as you study God's glory in the Bible, there are several several aspects of it, you could say. There's the inherent glory of God that he has in his being, that is, the sum of all his attributes, the sum of all that he is. You also see the visible glory, as we've seen here in Exodus and elsewhere, the cloud, the fire, the smoke, these awe-inspiring physical manifestations. The, the root word, by the way, for glory in the Old Testament is 
one that has to do with weight, weightiness of, of grandeur. So you might, you ever been someplace that's so awesome, you feel almost a weight upon you? That's how it is to be in God's presence, to see his glory. And you feel the weight of glory. You might have heard that term before, the weight of God's glory upon you. The, the, the power, the, the, the awesomeness of who God is, you just, it's almost like something that presses down upon you in all its weight. We also see creation glory. Uh, Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling what? The glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. So when God creates things, it's for his glory. It demonstrates his glory. We also have something, something we might call returned glory. I couldn't think of a real good term for that. But remember Psalm 29? Brett preached on this recently, where it says in Psalm 29 verse 1, ascribe to the Lord or give to the Lord glory and strength. Now, God doesn't need glory from us, but when we give to him or ascribe to him, we're saying, Lord, you are glorious. Lord, you are strong. And later, verse 9, it says, in his temple, everything says glory. So this this is a return or a reflected glory. God has glory and we we have no glory, but we can reflect that glory back to God as we praise him and who he is. And we see this, I think, in the the famous uh, question, what is the chief end of man? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we glorify God by reflecting who he is back to him. We glorify God in our praise. <clears throat> we glorify God when we ourselves become righteous by his spirit because we are indwelt by the glory of God in a sense. And we become like God in his glory because we are reflecting God's character, his his uh, his attributes as we become more and more like Jesus Christ. One last aspect of glory, we could probably find more, but is redemptive glory. Redemptive glory. God shows his glory in redemption. And there are many verses, but let me just read to you Romans 9, verses 22 and 23. This is speaking of God expressing his wrath, but he says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? You're asking, why Why does God even have patience with any of us? It says, verse 23, He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. We have the word glory there twice. So God has glorious riches, the riches of his glory. He gives those riches to us so that we might share his glory. We have our own glory that we're given uh, from God that we will enjoy forever in heaven. So God gives his glory to us in redemption that we might share it with him forever in heaven. And then we could also talk about embodied glory this embodied glory in Jesus Christ. Again, if you'll indulge me, let's let's look at this in the Gospel of John. The glory of the Son in the Gospel of John is, a, again, a major theme. We could do a whole sermon or a series on this, but I'll try and restrain myself. The glory of the, the Son, we see, go to John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, 
in his reflections on Christ, <clears throat> verse 14, when he talks about the glory of Christ, now we see his glory in other ways, but in this case, the glory we see in this word, this Christ, is that which is full of grace and truth. So here John focuses on the attributes, the character of Christ as being an example of his glory. It's the word's glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We also see Jesus' glory in his power. John 2. After the miracle of turning water into wine, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So we have glory in his character. We have glory in his power. We also see in John 7, glory in his teaching, glory in his words. John seven sixteen. Jesus says, My teaching is not from me, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So when Jesus speaks in his teaching, he speaks for the glory of God. We also see glory in the Father, John 8, John eight forty nine and 50. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. So seeking God's glory is the same thing as honoring him. So Jesus says, I don't seek my own glory. I seek the glory of my Father. So Jesus, Jesus glories in his Father. But he also has glory from his Father. Verse 54 says, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So Jesus comes not to glorify himself. He glorifies the Father. But the Father, in return, glorifies his Son, Jesus Christ. So as Jesus gives glory to the Father, glorifies the Father in his character, his power, his teaching, the Father glorifies him back. Look at John chapter 12. We also see a reference, and this is really interesting. I look forward to talking about it more in weeks to come. But we also see Jesus' glory seen in the Old Testament. Now, how do we see Jesus' glory in the Old Testament in John chapter 12? Look at verse 41. John 12, verse 41. Uh, And we don't have time to look at this whole passage, but it says, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory... And he spoke of him. And this is a reference back to Isaiah chapter 6. And you might remember that famous passage, what happens there in Isaiah 6. That's right. Isaiah has a vision of God, and he sees the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What does John say about that vision. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him, and he's talking about Jesus. You look back at verse 36 and so forth, and 37. Jesus is the one that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. The, the pre-incarnate Son of God is, is the vision that Isaiah had. So we even see the glory of Christ, 
seen by Isaiah referenced in John chapter 12. So Jesus' glory did not show up in Bethlehem, radiant beams from my holy face, which aren't in the Bible. Jesus' glory didn't show up even later on in, at the cross. Jesus' glory was there in Isaiah 6. And it was also there in eternity past. By the way, before I get there, I wanted to mention, I, I alluded to this before, but Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. And yet, the Son shares the glory of the Father because it's his by right as being God himself. The glory, again, Isaiah saw of Yahweh in Isaiah 6 was the glory of Christ. But Jesus' glory goes back even further than the Gospels. It goes further back than Isaiah, about 700 B.C. It goes back to eternity past. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Jesus is praying before his crucifixion. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus' glory is manifested in John 11, elsewhere in the Gospels, manifested in Isaiah chapter 6. It's also manifested before the world began. Jesus possessed that glory in his very nature as the Son of God. But Jesus not only possesses this glory, but he gives this glory, as we talked about before. John 17, verse 22. Jesus is still praying here. And he says, the glory which you have given me, he's talking to the Father, the glory which the Father has given to Christ, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. So, and them he's talking about are those who follow him. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. Who is that? It's us, isn't it? It's the disciples, and it's us. So if you are the youngest Christian in this place, you have the glory of the Father through Jesus Christ in you. Jesus has given the glory of God to you as a believer in Christ. What, what a great gift that is, to have the weight of God's glory given to us. It doesn't feel like it, does it, most days? But we are the glory of God in Jesus Christ. What a great gift that is from him. So Jesus possesses all this glory in his character, in his power, in his teaching, the glory from his Father, the glory that he gives to his Father, the glory in the Old Testament, the glory before the world began, the glory he gives to us, and then the glory we will have with him in the future. Verse 24 says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. How many of you want to go see Christ? Hopefully everybody. How many of you does Christ want to come see him? Hopefully all the same hands, right? You want to go be with Christ. I know we all do. More than that, Jesus prays you in here. He desires that we will be with him. So it's not as though, you ever have a visitor come to your house where, you know, I'm not quite ready. I'd rather have a night alone. You don't really want them to show up at your door. It's kind of an inconvenience. Maybe you don't have enough food or you've got other plans. That's not how Jesus welcomes us into heaven. Jesus wants us there. We are welcome guests. He's preparing a place for us. He loves us so much. He's giving us these mansions in glory, you might say. 
And Jesus prepares that place for us because he wants us to be there. When I married Joan, I had a condo by myself. It wasn't a mansion by any means. But I had a place for her. When we got married, she came back to my place. I wanted her there. Still want her there. Different house. Same same concept. In the same way, in a greater way, infinitely greater way, Jesus wants us there with him as his people. He desires that we're with them, with him there so that they may see his glory. We can now see Jesus' glory in a, a faint way here on this earth, but when we go to heaven, we will see his glory in its fullness. And Jesus wants us to see that with him. So past, present, future, Jesus is glorious. We possess that glory, and one day we will fully and finally experience that glory. It's a good place to start. stop, isn't it? I want to keep going, but I feel like I've preached out for the day. But as we just wrap up right now, think of the glory that Jesus Christ has. If you are discouraged, you're, you're feeling not so glorious this morning for whatever reason, Jesus has glory. He's given it to you. He's given you a great gift in, in himself and salvation. If you know Christ, you can hold on to that glory. Maybe you don't see it now, but you know it's there in the future, as we'll see later. Jesus has a plan, even in suffering, even in death. Jesus has a plan, and he will work out that plan in his own time for our good and for his glory. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this short look, even at Jesus' glory. What an amazing truth it is. What a glorious truth, even, it is to see who he is. And we pray that as we look at Christ's glory in the scripture, we would be changed, even as Paul says, we would be transformed from glory to glory. We look at Christ and we see who he is, we see who we are not. And we see the blemishes, we see the sins, we see the weakness. And yet, as we gaze at Christ and we prayerfully rely on the Spirit, you will transform us into that same image of Christ day by day. And one day we will fully have and share his glory. We pray to hasten that day. In the meantime, may we be diligent to seek his glory in our righteous lives. Seek his glory by being a light to the world, reflecting his glory to the world. And for those who don't know Christ, may today be the day where they receive that glory and believe in the glory of Jesus Christ, accept it, and themselves be transformed from glory to glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.